Our, our text for the sermon this morning <clears throat> follows right after the scripture reading. So if you remember, Jesus came to John and he was baptized. And let me read for you again, uh, chapter 3, verse 17 in Matthew. And then we'll read verses 4, 1 through 11. <clears throat> Sorry, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, if, for it is written He shall give His angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Let's pray together. Most kind and gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can trust in it. We thank you that it tells us about your son and the, your salvation, your plan for salvation for the world. Open the eyes and ears of your people now. Let them hear your word. Let it go into them deeply and transform them. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So I'm preaching from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And this is a glorious passage that describes the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Again, Jesus has just been baptized by John. The Spirit descends upon him, and the Father proclaims his love over his Son. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, is what the Father says. And then the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to do battle with the devil. Often this passage has been seen as an example of how it is that we are to deal with temptation. Jesus relies on Scripture, which, by the way, would have just been the Old Testament for him. This, this passage is often uh, used to talk about how we should fight against temptation and sin. And what Jesus does is he refers back to the Old Testament over and over again, uses scripture to fight against the devil. But it's just striking to realize that he only had the Old Testament. That's what Jesus uses to combat the devil. Sort of a side note there. That one's for free. <laughs> While it is true that we learn much about fighting temptation in this passage, it is important to recognize that this is not Matthew's primary point in this passage. Matthew sets Jesus here as a new Israel. He shows that Jesus is a new Adam. He is the true Son of God. That's Matthew's point in this passage. Jesus is the true Son of God. And we can see this because we know that Israel was sent into the wilderness for 40 years because they did not believe the words of Yahweh, that he would give them the promised land. If you remember back in uh, the Old Testament, when Israel is led out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, they come to the edge of the promised land, and God tells them to go in and take the land. Moses sends the 12 spies in. The spies come back, and 10 of the spies say, there's no way we can take this land. Joshua and Caleb are the only two spies who say, yes, we can do this. We believe in God. If he delights in us, he will give us the land. And it doesn't matter that there are giants there. We can take them. And because of the report from the ten spies that the land was, uh, the, the men there, the armies there were too mighty for them to take and to conquer, Israel uh, does not obey God, does not go into the land, does not trust that God is going to walk with them through this. And because of this, they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. They did not trust, they did not believe the words of Yahweh that he would give them this promised land. And here we see that Jesus also enters into the wilderness, and we see here him undoing Israel's lack of trust. Israel did not trust in the Lord. It did not believe his words. And here we see Jesus in a similar way, 40, years in the or 40 days in the wilderness, like Israel was 40 years in the wilderness. And here we see Jesus trusting heavily on the words of his Father. He is led into the wilderness by the Spirit 
in the context of fulfilling the proclamation that he is God's beloved son. That's very important to to see. The last verse in chapter 3, And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then chapter 4 verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. God says over Jesus, You are my beloved son. And then he drives him into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, what I hope to do this morning is to first address the question that I think we we need to address here is, does God tempt? It says here that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted for the purpose of being tempted. So we need to address the question, what does it mean? How, How is it that the Spirit is driving him for the purpose of being tempted? Can we say that God tempts in some way? And then I'm going to walk through the different temptations that the devil brings to Jesus. And let me give you a brief outline of that. So first, I want to address the question, does God tempt? Second, we're going to look at the first temptation. And in this first temptation, um, the devil essentially tests Jesus and asks him to prove himself. Prove that you are the Son of God. And then the second temptation, the devil asks Jesus to make God prove himself. May God prove himself that he is the father, that he is your father. And then lastly, the third temptation, he tempts, the devil tempts Jesus to take what is yours. Take what has been promised to you. These are the three temptations. So I don't have sermon notes for you, so if you want a brief outline of where we're going, that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through those three temptations individually. But first, does God tempt? It's worth considering this question, I think. On the one hand, we know from Scripture that he does not because there is no evil in him, as James says. In James uh, chapter 1, verse 13, James makes very clear, uh, let no man say if he is tempted by God, uh, or if he, is, if he is tempted, that I am tempted by God, because there is no evil in God, so he cannot tempt. Okay? So on the one hand, we know that, we, we believe Scripture, God does not tempt because there's no evil in him. At the same time, we hold that with one hand, but at the same time, we are sinners, and we live in a sinful world, And so, wherever we go, there are temptations, right? We are sinful, we are fallen people, and we live in a world that is broken by sin. So everywhere we go, there are going to be temptations, and we also know that all of our steps are directed by God. We see this in many places in Scripture, but uh, one verse you could write down would be Proverbs 20, verse 24. All All of our steps are directed by the Lord. He leads us. And so if he's leading us and he knows that we are sinful and he knows that we live in a sinful world and he's the one directing us to different places, it's as if, in a sense, he is um, putting us into situations where we are tempted. So we hold on one hand that, no, God does not tempt. There's no evil in him. He does not put the evil in our hearts by which we are tempted. But at the same time, like a good father, he puts us in situations to test us. And we see this, the prime example of this is this passage, Matthew chapter 4. God does lead us into temptation to to test, to prove, to try, and grow our faith. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. Just a couple chapters later, in Matthew chapter 6, After Jesus has this encounter with the devil, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer. And part of that prayer is, do not lead us into temptation. Jesus instructs us to pray to our Father in heaven, do not lead us into temptation. And yet we see Jesus himself being led into temptation by the devil, or I'm sorry, by the Spirit, to be tempted by the devil. What's going on there? When we pray, do not lead us into temptation, I don't think that Um, this implies or ought to imply that we should have any expectation that we should not encounter temptation. That's not what it means. Rather, we pray that that the Father does not lead us into temptation and leave us there. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We're not asking God to remove us out of this sinful world so that we are never tempted. We're asking God because we know, because we follow Jesus' example, that we will be tempted And so, Lord, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from that evil. We see, similarly, Paul says something in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that every temptation that you encounter 
for, for each of those temptations, God provides the means of escape. God is the one that directs us, directs our steps. He's the one that, in a sense, sets us in circumstances uh, in which we are tempted. And he's the one that provides the means of escape. He's the one who does deliver us from evil. So God does not tempt in that he does not put evil into our hearts. And yet, he does lead us in such a way that our faith is often tested and refined. Some other places we could see this would be in Genesis chapter 22. When Abraham is tested, it says, his faith is tested when God commands him to sacrifice his only son. His faith is tested. There's a temptation set in front of him. Job says that God is going to test him until he, is, until he uh, makes sure his faith in God. And then 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says to the, the Christians that he's writing to that the trials that they are going through are testing the genuineness of their faith. Is, the, is their faith, it's going to be proved or tested by fire. God is testing them. He is making their salvation sure. Now this is all in the context also of God being Father. We see this when God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he drives Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. God is a good father and God sets us in situations such that he might fashion us more into Christ's image. God is the one who sets you in hard circumstances. God is the one who sets you in places where he knows you will be tempted. And in doing so, he's a good father. He's a good father because he's testing you, trying you, proving you growing you and making you more like Jesus. But God never sets us there and leaves us. He never sets us there, but he always provides the means of escape because he is that means of escape. And so the question is, when we find ourselves in temptation, the question is, do we trust the words of the Father? Do we trust his proclamation over us? If you've been baptized like Jesus was baptized, then God has said over you that you are his beloved son, his beloved daughter. So do you trust in those words? We're going to see how Jesus trusted in these words of the Father. The first temptation, in the first temptation, the, the devil tests Jesus and tempts him to prove himself. Let me read for you again, uh, starting in verse 3. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Jesus had been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and Matthew says that he was hungry. And it is as he is hungry that the devil comes to him with this first temptation. The tempter begins by saying, if you are the Son of God. Isn't that striking? If you are the Son of God, what was the last thing that the Father said? This is my beloved Son. And the devil begins with, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. His temptation is two-pronged. He begins by questioning the words of God. Satan begins by questioning the words of God, as he has done since the beginning. Think back to Genesis, when, when we see Adam and Eve in the garden, and the serpent comes to Eve. And what does he say to Eve? Did God really say? That's how he begins talking with Eve. Did God really say? He's testing Eve. Do you trust the words of God? Did God really say that you should not eat of every tree or you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And we see, um, if, you, if you think about how Satan tempts Eve in that instance, what else, does he, what else does he tempt her with? He says that if you eat of this tree that God had forbidden Adam and Eve to eat from, what would happen? You'd become wise and you would be like God. He tempts Eve by saying, it's, has God really told you not to eat of these things? It must be because God is holding something back from you. He doesn't want you to be like him. Because if you do eat of this, you will become like God. Okay, so God's holding back from you. He's so so Satan is casting shade. He's he's um, uh, putting throwing God's words, God's promises into a dark light. Did God really say this? And if He did, does He does He really have your best interest in mind? 
Is he really caring for you? This is the same thing we see here in Matthew chapter 4. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. So the first part of this temptation is um, questioning the words of God. Then he also tempts Jesus to prove the words of God by doing a simple miracle. How hard would it have been for Jesus to turn those stones into bread? It, it It would have been nothing for him. It would have been no trouble for Jesus to turn those stones into bread. Jesus is the one who, by whom all things were created. He holds everything together. We see him doing all kinds of miracles throughout the Gospels. It would not have been a problem for him to do it. So what's the temptation here? I think part of the simplicity of, this tempta- of the temptation is, or part of the simplicity of the miracle is part of the temptation. Do this small thing. Save yourself. You've been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and you're hungry. Save yourself. Do this small thing and prove that you are the Son of God. But Jesus' response is, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What does he mean by that? Jesus is not saying that you do not need to eat in order to live. He's not saying that you can go and just read your Bible and, you will, and you'll be fine. You'll have all the nourishment you need. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. So turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 8. Understanding the context of, what's, uh, of the passage that Jesus is quoting from is really important. Why does Jesus choose this verse to answer the devil? In, this, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is with the people of Israel. They're about to go into the promised land. And Moses is recounting the commandments that God has given to the people. And he's, he's recounting what God has done for them. How he brought them out of Egypt. How he's been with them through the 40 years of the wilderness. And Moses emphasizes to them that God is the sustainer of life and the one on whom we should depend. Let me read for you a few verses from this at the beginning of of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Start in verse 2. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Interesting there. Just like Jesus is sent into the wilderness to be tempted, Moses says that the Lord led Israel for 40 years in the wilderness to humble and test them. Just like Jesus. To know what was in your heart. Verse 3, So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's the verse that Jesus quotes. So God led them through the wilderness, sustained them through the wilderness, and how did he do that? By providing this miracle bread from heaven, this manna. Now, the people of Israel were, not, were forbidden from gathering more than one day's worth of this manna. If they gathered more than that, it would turn rotten and stink, and it would, it would be un, they would be unable to eat it. Instead, what they had to do, God was teaching them to trust in his words. He told them, I will, I will provide this for you every day. And every day you go out and you gather this. And if they trusted in his words, he sustained them. If, if they trusted in him, they would go out every day. They trusted, they believed him that he would provide for them. But if they tried to rely on their own ability to gather and provide for themselves, they would have nothing. They would have no food. It would go bad. God was teaching them and testing them, instructing them to trust in his words. Now, God had said that Jesus was his son. And if we keep reading in Deuteronomy, let me, I'm sorry, let me read a couple more verses here. Verse 5, you should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Isn't that interesting also? God sends Israel into the wilderness to humble them and test them because, he says, as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. A good father 
chastens his sons. A good father disciplines his children. We see that also in Hebrews chapter 12. So a good father disciplines his children. And God is saying, that's what I was doing with you, Israel, when I sent you into the wilderness. And then God calls Jesus his son. The father calls Jesus his son. And he sends Jesus into the wilderness. He's chastening him, disciplining him, discipling him, training him, proving him. So being hungry in the wilderness does not cause Jesus to doubt God's words at all. Rather, he knows that his father has sustained him for 40 days and nights like he sustained Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. When Satan comes to Jesus and says, you're hungry, cause these stones to become bread so that you can feed yourself. Jesus is not tempted by that because he trusts in the words of the father. He trusts that I am the father's son. I am the father's beloved son. He is well pleased with me. He will sustain me. So what are you tempted to trust in or turn to instead of trusting God to sustain you? There are all kinds of things that we, re- we tend to rely on instead of trusting in what God has said. Do you trust in your bank account? Do you trust in your work? Do you trust in your ability to work? Do you trust in your health? Do you trust in your food diets? What do you trust in? And in trusting in those things, in turning to those things, are you turning to them instead of turning to God and trusting in Him to sustain you? It's amazing to me that the temptation that the devil brings to Jesus is a temptation with food. It's as if this is a perennial thing. The temptation, I think, to trust in our food, in our our ability to sustain ourselves or to provide for ourselves by choosing the right things, taking the right diets, that's something that you see throughout history, right? And it's so easy. Obviously, we're to take care of ourselves. We're to take care of our bodies. We're to enjoy the food that God has created. And yet, how easy is it for that to become an idol? How easy is it for that to become the thing that makes you that makes you think that you are pleased, that God is pleased with you. Because you're keeping yourself healthy, because you're following these methods. Instead of actually trusting in God's words that He's pleased in you because His Son died for you. God is the one, Jesus is the one that holds everything together. And so we are to trust in the Creator, not in the creation. Trust in the Creator, not in the creation. Trust in the Father's words, not in your ability to provide for yourself. So Satan tempts Jesus by saying, turn these stones into bread, perform this simple miracle in order to prove yourself. If you are the Son of God, prove it. Prove it by this miracle. But Jesus says, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by trusting in the words of God. Satan then tries another angle. The second temptation, he uh, addresses Jesus again and says, if you are the Son of God, again questioning God's proclamation over Jesus. This time, he takes Jesus up to to the holy city, Jerusalem, and he sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, the highest point in the city, and he says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. uh, The devil comes to Jesus this time more prepared to do battle. Jesus had answered the devil by quoting scripture, and so the devil brings his own scripture to quote at Jesus this time. Satan quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from this high pinnacle of the temple, because God has said that he will save you with his angels. Psalm 91 is talking about the man who trusts in God, the one in whom the Father is well pleased. So if you cast yourself down, If you actually are the Son of God, of course He would save you, right? So how is this a temptation to Jesus? It seems actually sort of like, well, yeah, of course. 
Why does Jesus resist this temptation? Why does Jesus see this as a temptation? One of the things that's striking, though, is is how Satan picks the verses out of Psalm 91. If you have your Bibles, turn there and take a look at this. If If you scan through Psalm 91, you see over and over that it's about the man who trusts in God. He calls God his refuge, his secret place. He's under the shadow of the Almighty. God is going to protect him from arrows and from pestilence and destruction. A thousand men may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you. So it's the man who trusts in God, who gives himself to God, who's resting in God. And it's of that man that God says, Uh, In verse 11, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. But if Jesus, the, the way in which this is a temptation is because the devil is saying, again, if you are the son of God. If you are the son of God, do this. So if Jesus had thrown himself from the pinnacle, what would he have been doing? He would have been questioning the words of God. God said, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. And if Jesus had cast himself down, he would not have been trusting in God's words. Instead, he would have been testing it, making God prove himself. In uh, sort of a side note here, this I think demonstrates, um, the devil nicely demonstrates for us, the danger of taking a verse out of context. We could read that verse and we could say, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you on all all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. God's going to protect me so I can go and throw myself off the roof and and wait for God to protect me. It's sort of an extreme example in some regards, but you can see how the devil takes this out of context. And because of that, he's able to twist it and use it to actually tempt Jesus himself. God, though, is not a machine to be cycle-tested. He's not a man to be provoked to see what his reaction is. And so Jesus again responds by boldly trusting in the words of God, saying, once again, it is written. He refers again to God's own words. This time he says, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. This is also quoting from Deuteronomy. This time from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16 says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. What is that verse referring to? Again, this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel, recounting what has happened in their past. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. Moses there is referring to an episode in Exodus chapter 17. While they, having come out of Egypt, having crossed the Red Sea, they're wandering in the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai. And the, and the, the people find themselves in the desert where there is no water. They've gone for days without water. And they begin to cry out to Moses. They say, give us water that we may drink. And Moses says to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? The people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now Moses says that in saying this, they were tempting the Lord. How is it tempting God for the people of Israel who think that they are dying for for lack of water to cry out to him? How is that tempting God? And how is that something that Moses later says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God that way? Such that Jesus himself can say, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. How is, if you stop and think about it, they're dying of thirst. And so they're complaining to Moses, did you bring us out here to kill us? 
How is this tempting God? Well, at the end of this section in Exodus chapter 17, we find out a little bit more. Verse 7 says, So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? What was behind their complaining was this question of, Is the Lord among us? God had sent Moses through a miraculous story saved Moses' life numbers of times, brought him back into Egypt to deliver the people. He destroyed Egypt through the plagues while preserving Israel. Completely wiped out the power that Egypt was and at the same time preserved his own people. God opened the Red Sea for the people of Israel. He led them through it and through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He sustained them with manna from heaven. And Israel complains and asks, is God with us? It's in the context of all that God has done for them, all that God has brought them out of, all that God has, in all the ways that God has sustained them. And the people of Israel say, is the Lord among us or not? It's not just that they were dying of thirst and crying out, for God to save them. It's that they were complaining and questioning, was God even there? When all they had to do was think back to what God had done for them, where God had brought them from, how God had continued to sustain them, sustain them had proven to them that he would sustain them, had promised them that he would sustain them. And yet they questioned where he was. In contrast, Jesus is the new Israel. When given the opportunity to tempt or test God, he instead turns back to to God's words and rests in them. He turns back to what God has said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. He turns back to what God has said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And in doing so, he trusts God. He trusts what he has said. He doesn't need to make God prove himself, to make God show himself that he is actually with Jesus. Now, there is a way to test God faithfully. We see this in Malachi chapter 3. In Malachi chapter 3, the prophet, um, the Lord through the prophet Malachi is... um, chastising the people or correcting the people because they've not brought their tithes and offerings to the temple. They've not brought their tithes and offerings to the Lord. They've neglected to obey God in this. In verse 10, God says, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. Try me now, test me now in this. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. So God actually gives an an instance of where it is appropriate, where he calls on the people to test him in something. There's a way to cry out to God, to ask where he is. When you find yourself in a dark situation, of course, we cry out to God and ask where he is. And Jesus himself is the prime example for that again. When does Jesus cry out to God and ask where he is? It's when he's hanging on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, God? You read through the Psalms and you hear that kind of language over and over again. Where are you, Lord? My enemies are all about me. I'm in a dark place. So there is a way to test God. There is a way to cry out to God. What's different between those things and the way that Israel cries out to God? The way that Israel tempts God by questioning where he is. The way that the devil tempts Jesus. The difference, the key is obedience. We don't test God by seeing how far he will go by grasping, by grasping for assurance in that way. We don't test God by pleading for a sign to just prove himself so that we could have assurance that he's there. We test God by walking in obedience, by looking expectantly for him to fulfill his promises. 
Think about that instance that the Lord gives in Malachi. God says, you have not been obeying me. You've not been bringing tithes into my house. And so try me in this. Test me in this way. Bring the tithes in and see if I don't open heaven up and pour my blessings upon you. Test me in this. Test me by obeying me. I've given you promises. Test me by walking in obedience and trusting in those promises. Test me in that way. Test me to see if I will fulfill my promises by actually obeying me. Instead, what the devil is tempting Jesus to do is to test God by doing something that has nothing to do with what God has commanded. Throw yourself down so that God will save you. We test God rightly by trusting in his words. Again, Jesus trusts the words of the Father, that he is the Son of God and that the Father is pleased in him. So first temptation, the devil tempts Jesus to prove himself. If you are the Son of God, do this miracle, show yourself to be the Son of God. Second temptation, make God prove himself. If you are the Son of God, cast yourself down and make God show that you are the Son of God by saving you, by sending the angels to watch over you. Uh, one thing to point out, a couple things to point out. When Satan brings this temptation, this second temptation to Jesus, the irony here is, is wonderful. Satan quotes from Psalm 91, right? That the angels are going to come, they're going to save this man who's trusting in the Lord. And he quotes from verses 11 and 12, but Satan forgot verse 13. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Do you, you know the theme of the son, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent? I think Satan overlooked this verse. This one, this man that trusts in God, what does he do? He tramples on the head of the serpent. And then, look back at Matthew 4, this passage that we're working through. Read the very last verse in this passage. Chapter 4, verse 11. After the devil leaves, it says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Satan attempted Jesus... If you are the Son of God, make God prove Himself by throwing yourself down so that the angels will come and minister to you. Jesus resists the temptation. He obeys the Father. He trusts in His Word. And what happens? Because He walks in obedience, the angels come and minister to Him. The, that promise that God gave in Psalm 91 actually comes and is fulfilled with Jesus because He walked in obedience. Okay, so the third temptation then. In this instance, Satan tempts Jesus to take what is his. Jesus takes, I'm sorry, Satan takes Jesus to a high mountain and displays the kingdoms of the world to him with their glory. He offers them all to Jesus if only he will do this one thing. If only he will bow down and worship the devil. Now, why would this be a temptation to Jesus? What about this would be tempting for Jesus to want to worship the devil. We know from Psalm 2 that the Father had promised to give Jesus all the nations already. Okay, Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8. God promises to give to His Son all of the kingdoms of the earth. So why is this, a, if Jesus knows that, He knows the promise, why is it a temptation for Him then to bow down to Satan? God's already promised to give, it, give Him the nations. And yet, Jesus knew that he had a hard road ahead of him. Here was an opportunity to receive this authority over all the earth without having to undergo the pain, the shame, the weight, and the anguish of the cross. In this instance, what the temptation is that Satan is giving Jesus is, I will give you what the Father has already promised you. You know it's coming. I will give it to you, and you don't have to go to the cross. I will give you what the Father has promised and you don't have to suffer. How hard was the cross for Jesus? Well, we know Jesus, when he's on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
We know that when he's getting ready to go to the cross, he's sweating drops of blood. And if you have ever felt any guilt for your sin, any instance of guilt for for something you have done, all of that from every person that Jesus saves around the world for all time was upon him on the cross. You can see now why this would be tempting to him. Take the kingdoms now. You don't need to suffer first. And Jesus says in a couple different places, John 12 and John 14, that the devil at this time in some way is the ruler of the world. So it would make sense to Jesus, you could see. You could see why this is tempting. The devil is in some way the ruler of the world at that time. And he's offering to give Jesus all these kingdoms. It would seem like he has the authority. It would seem like Jesus could have all the nations without suffering. So why not take the kingdoms this way? Now, what's different about this temptation is that Satan does not explicitly say, if you are the Son of God. He said that for the first two. If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. But at this time, he doesn't say that. And yet, in this instance, he is still tempting Jesus to question the declaration of the Father, this is my beloved Son, and his promises to him. Satan is still saying to Jesus, did God really say? If you are the Son, you could imagine Satan arguing this way, if you are the Son of God, why would you have to die to get these kingdoms? Did God really say you needed to go to the cross? to take all of that in order to get these kingdoms? What kind of a father gives gifts like that? What kind of a father gives gifts to his children by requiring them to die? What kind of a king gives the inheritance to his prince by asking him to give up his life? The father is holding back from you, Jesus, just like he did with Adam and Eve. Did God really say? But Jesus here is the new Adam, and he trusts in his father. Jesus' response is emphatic. And he says to the devil, away with you, Satan. This is the only appropriate response for getting something at the cost or being offered something at the cost of bondage and idolatry. When you are tempted with something, uh, to, uh, tempted to receive, to, or if you are offered something, and the cost of Receiving that is to sell yourself, to put yourself in bondage, to compromise. Jesus shows here that the appropriate response is, away with you. Get out of here. A third time, Jesus returns to the words of God to fight the temptations of the devil. And he appeals again to Deuteronomy. If nothing else from this sermon, one thing to walk away from is you all need to know Deuteronomy a whole lot better because that's what Jesus uses to fight these temptations. Okay, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 again, this time from verse 13. Satan has tempted him. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, it is written, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him. I'm sorry, Jesus, Jesus says... You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And he's quoting there from Deuteronomy. The translation's a little different. But in Deuteronomy it says, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him. For the Lord your God, I'm sorry, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. Serve God, fear God, worship him only. To worship Satan, to bow down to the devil, would not result in Jesus receiving the kingdoms. Goes on in Deuteronomy, serve the Lord only, do not go after the other gods, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. To bow down to other gods, to sell yourself into bondage, God says, If you do that, he will destroy you. So if Jesus had had given in to this temptation, had bowed to the devil, he would not have received the kingdoms of the earth. 
Quite the opposite. Instead, Jesus trusts the promise of the Father. God is the true ruler, the one who truly can bestow all authority and power. He's the one who sets up kings, who gives kings their power. He's the one who can give the kingdoms to Jesus, not the devil. And at this, when Jesus resists this way, the devil leaves. As James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So, the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. He offers Jesus the kingdoms, or the devil offers Jesus the kingdoms in this last temptation. And like we saw in the previous temptation, there's some ironies about what the devil leaves out and what he misses and what happens later. The same thing happens in this temptation. The devil tempts Jesus by taking him up to a high mountain, showing him all the kingdoms, and says, if you bow down to me, I will give these to you. How does Matthew close the Gospel of Matthew? Jesus, we see Jesus with his disciples on a mountain. What does he, to say, what does he say to his disciples? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus on a mountain saying, I've received it. He's come through the cross. He's died. He's been raised from the dead. He's about to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And he says, all authority has been given to me. And the devil missed that. So the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. The Spirit is the one, God is the one, who drives the Son to be tempted. If you have been saved and baptized, if you have been given new life, then God has declared to you also that you are His beloved daughter or son. In in Romans 8, Paul says that, through the work of the Spirit, we cry out to the Father, Abba, Father. We cry out to Him as our Father because the Spirit has made us sons and daughters like Jesus. We are brothers with Jesus, and God is our Father. And so, you have been adopted and made heirs with Christ. The Spirit leads you too, and He will lead you into wildernesses. Of various kinds. He will lead you into wildernesses to test you and try you and tempt you. Do you see this wilderness? Do you see these wildernesses as a sign of God's fatherly love? The ones that God drives into the wilderness are the ones He loves. What wilderness do you find yourself in? Do you find yourself in a wilderness because of health problems? Because of your relationships with your parents? Are things in your marriage rough? Is your relationship with your husband or your relationship with your wife tense? Sinful? Does it feel like a wilderness? Do you find yourself in a wilderness at work because the work is grueling? You don't get along well with your boss? Do you find yourself in a wilderness because you are lonely? Do you find yourself in a wilderness because you've lost loved ones? Maybe a parent, maybe a child, or a sibling? Do you find yourself in these wildernesses? Do you even, I think we could even describe the everyday grind, what can feel so monotonous at times, that's a, that can be a wilderness. Do you find yourself in in a wilderness of that monotony? Kids, do you find yourself in wildernesses when it comes to your schoolwork? It can feel like, why do I need to do these math problems? I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, this is a wilderness, right? It can feel that way. But who placed you there? Who took you there? If you are in Christ, the Spirit took you there. And if you are in Christ, you also know that there is an escape from that wilderness. That God is going to bring you through that wilderness. Through that darkness. So the question is, will you be faithful like Jesus? Will you trust in God's promises and lean on His words when you are tempted to turn to other things? As you are in the wilderness, do you hear Paul's words? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Do you believe God's promises to sustain you, to deliver you, to make you heirs with Christ? Jesus trusted God to sustain him and deliver him, all in his own timing. He trusted in the Father's declaration that Jesus was his beloved Son, in whom the Father was well pleased. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Father looks at you, and if you are in Christ, he says to you, you are my beloved Son. You are my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. It's through this perfect trust in the Father that Jesus obtains victory over the devil in the wilderness, and ultimately over the devil and death and all principalities and powers in his death, resurrection, and ascension. He does this, he did this, so that you might be sons and daughters with him, so that you might walk through the wilderness, and that you might take up your cross and obtain the victory through him. It's by trusting in the Father's words. And so if you look to Jesus, and if you cling to him and him alone, if you trust the words of your Father, he will sustain you. He will bring you through every wilderness, through every trial, through every temptation. There is no temptation except such as is common and that God will give you the means of escape. He brought Jesus through the wilderness and if you are in Jesus, he brings you through the wilderness too. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call you Father. We thank you that you are a good Father. Help us, Lord, to trust in your words. In your spirit, help us to look to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. We know that it is only by grace, through faith, that we do these things. And we need your spirit. Pour out your spirit upon these people now as we go into this week. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.